Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Welcome back to Strictly VC Download, the most downloaded sports podcast of all time. Wait, no, that's another podcast. Welcome to Strictly VC, where we tell corny jokes, brief you on some of the week's most impactful stories in tech, and also talk with someone smart who we think could educate all of us. Our guest this week, Tim Kendall, the former president of Pinterest, and before that, the first director of monetization at Facebook, where he spent five years helping to architect many of the modern money-making strategies that we see today in social media, and who has since become an outspoken advocate of minimizing the use of these same apps, given the effect that they've begun to take on our society, from addicting us to our smartphones to sharing misinformation, of which people can't seem to get enough. In fact, our first story of the day centers on something that we spent time talking with Tim about this afternoon. Alex, take it away. On Tuesday, the U.S. government and 11 states announced plans to sue Google for engaging in anti-competitive tactics with its search engine. Now comes word that the Federal Trade Commission and a coalition of 46 state attorneys general are considering filing antitrust charges against Facebook as soon as next month. The FTC is reportedly paying special attention to whether Facebook used its acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram to stifle competition. Even though federal regulators had the opportunity to block both of these purchases when Facebook first proposed them. As for the states, Letitia James, New York State's AG, said that her staff is investigating whether Facebook may have, quote, put consumer data at risk, reduced the quality of consumers' choices, and increased the price of advertising. Just last year, Facebook had to pay $5 billion in fines levied by the FTC for violating consumers' privacy. At the time, critics accused the FTC of pulling its punches and choosing not to exact a penalty from Facebook in the tens of billions of dollars, or hold Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg personally responsible for the lapses. Now the FTC is back, along with 46 state AGs in tow. David Swenson, the veteran investment chief of Yale University's $31.2 billion endowment, has reportedly told dozens of firms that manage Yale's money they will be measured on their progress, increasing the diversity of their investment staffs. Hire more women and minorities or possibly lose the university's backing was the message, says the Wall Street Journal. This is pushback against the exclusionary history of money management across asset classes, which has remained very stubbornly white and stubbornly male, and which frankly can't be defended by the data. As the journal notes, a 2019 study commissioned by the Knight Foundation found that women and minority-owned firms held less than 1% of assets managed by mutual funds, hedge funds, private equity funds, and real estate funds in 2017. Yet their performance was typically on a par with those firms, and this despite a relative lack of experience or the wide-reaching connections that more established firms have. In any case, this is a big deal. Yale's endowment is one of the Biggest in the country, and David Swenson is a legend whose words and actions probably mean more to other endowment managers than anyone else on the planet. So you can definitely expect to see more of them making diversity a priority and a way to measure the progress of the firms that manage their money. Yesterday, a California state appeals court ruled that Uber and Lyft must treat their drivers as employees, not independent contractors. Uber maintains that this order will wreak havoc on its business model. Analysts estimate that complying with California's gig worker law could cost Uber, which has never been profitable, as much as $500 million a year. 
To drive this point home, in recent weeks, the company has sent in-app notifications to drivers saying it would only be able to hire three out of 10 as employees. It has separately told riders their prices would rise between 20% and 100%. Nevertheless, the market was unperturbed. Uber's stock rose a smidge today, while Lyft was up almost 2% for the day. Investors may be banking on Proposition 22, a California ballot initiative that aims to reclassify gig economy workers as contractors. The proposition, the most expensive in the state's history, is being backed by over $189 million in funding from Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmates, versus only $15 million raised by the proposition's opposition. Last, there was an interesting development in the automotive world this week and amid the world of car dealerships specifically. Techion, a four-year-old San Mateo-based company, took the wraps off of a software platform for dealers to deliver a seamless experience for their customers. It was interesting because everyone I talked with about this company said it is legitimately head and shoulders above anything that exists in the market. It's also interesting because of the company's founder, Jay Vijayan, who spent more than four years as the CIO of Tesla beginning in 2011, where, as Vijayan and told me he basically created this seamless automotive retail platform with Elon Musk within the company. They had to build it internally because options outside the company were so grim. But because options outside the company were so grim, once they finished, Vijayan thought, wow, why don't I do this outside of Tesla for everyone else? An unexpected twist here is that on the day of Vijayan's big reveal, I think this was maybe Tuesday, Elon Musk on a quarterly call with analysts talked about all of the startups that have essentially been built inside of Tesla, including the same vehicle servicing business. It was most likely a coincidence, and Musk said that Tesla does not have the bandwidth right now to spin out any of these businesses, but it did raise the question of whether Vijayan may someday be competing not with some stodgy old incumbents, but against his former boss. Up next, our interview with Tim Kendall. But first, a word from our sponsor. Affinity has become the new standard for managing relationships and increasing deal flow. Using patented technology, Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by eliminating manual data entry and unlocking introductions to key decision makers. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity lets you get deeper insights into your network so you can more easily open doors and close deals. You can learn more at Affinity.co or listen to their new podcast, Capital Connections, where they interview top investors about how their network influenced success. Find Capital Connections on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Tim, we're so happy to have you here today. For listeners who may not know, you pioneered much of modern social media's monetization mechanisms. You're now the CEO of Moment, an app that helps users monitor device habits and reinforces positive screen time behavior. You also appeared in the recent Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Tim, I'd read in an interview that a sequence in The Social Dilemma, one where the fictional family puts all of their phones in a lockbox just to get through dinner without them, was actually inspired by your own attempt to sever ties to technology. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. There's a scene where the mother tries to get everyone to not get on their devices during dinner. And so she has this device called the kitchen safe where they put all their phones in this plastic box with a little timer lock on the top and 
I won't spoil the movie, but basically the, the young daughter breaks into the lockbox halfway through dinner. But yeah, so a few years back when I was just personally struggling with spending less time on my phone and realizing that when I did it, I just felt better psychologically and I felt like I was just a better person, better husband, better dad. I was playing with all these different ways of protecting myself from my phone. And I came across this thing called a kitchen safe which was originally designed for dieting. It was originally designed for people who were trying to build their willpower around not eating sweets, as an example. And now the company really markets themselves much more as a mechanism to help people take breaks or sabbaticals from their phones. I still use it from time to time. The other thing that works really well for me is just leaving my phone in my car when I get home from work. And that's enough friction between me and getting to my phone that I tend to leave it there for at least several hours and sometimes until the next morning. And, and on those days that I'm able to do that, which is not every day, I feel a lot better. At what point did you decide not just that it was a problem for you, but that you wanted to take a more public role in helping to identify the problem and potentially help solve it? I've always been interested in willpower and just the notions of the various things that weaken our willpower. I have addiction in various parts of my family and extended family. And so I've seen that up close, substance abuse, drug abuse. And as I started to look at this problem, it felt really similar, right? It's the same shape and size as being addicted to drugs or having a behavioral addiction to food or shopping. But it didn't seem like anyone was treating this with the same gravity that those things are treated. And so I just started learning a lot about behavioral addiction and how it's actually very distinct from substance abuse or drug abuse in that you can't really abstain. We're not going to get rid of our phones in the same way that we're not going to stop eating food if we have a food issue or, or we're not going to stop going to the grocery store or, or the mall if we have an issue around shopping. And so I just got really interested in the idea of, gosh, what if there were something ironically on your phone that could help give you back control? So that led me to Moment, which was an existing company started by a, a guy named Kevin Hollett. And he was humming along and I loved what he had built thus far when I found him three plus years ago and, and just decided, well, I could go replicate what he's building. But what he's built is really what I had in my mind. And so I bought the company and moved it out here to California. And we've been working at it ever since. It's splintered into some other projects that are all related to how do we get agency back over our lives? How do we improve our psychological well-being? But they're all really rooted around this idea of the phone really distorting our time and attention and taking away our control. One part of the social dilemma that really affected me the most was hearing about teenage suicides and how they increased with the advent of social media. Have you been surprised at the way in which the social dilemma has really caught fire with audiences? Yeah, it's interesting. Those stats about teenage suicide and self-harm, I'm on the board of Benioff Children's Hospital, and, and I saw those stats in a board meeting, and I called the filmmaker, and I said, Jeff, somehow this has to get incorporated because these are real stats and they're really scary. And basically showed that in the last 10 years, 10 to 14 year old girls, suicide rates have tripled and hospitalizations resulting from self-harm has increased five fold in that same group. 
To get to your specific question, yeah, I'm surprised. We just got a data point from Netflix that 38 million households saw the movie in the first 28 days, which is astounding reach for a documentary, right? This isn't an action movie <laughs> that everybody watches and sits down in their family room. So I am surprised. And I'm surprised that there's so much resonance. And it's heartening in a sense, because what it shows me is that I'm not alone in thinking that we've completely lost control of how we use our phones and that it's having this really destructive effect on us as individuals and our own personal psychological well-being, but it's also having an effect on our families, our communities, and then we all know what's happening at society level because of social media. Tim, you were so fundamental to the success of two of the largest social media companies on the planet. What has been the reaction of your colleagues to your turning the tables on this industry? It's evolved in the sense that I think at the beginning of this, I was kinder to Facebook. When I started talking publicly about my work with Moment, I said, look, I think that those folks are focused on the right issues and I think they're going to solve the problems. And I was out there throughout 2018 saying that. Now I've gotten a lot more vocal and in fact said, I don't think they're doing enough and I don't think it's happening quickly enough. So I've been pretty clear and I testified in front of Congress that they're not doing enough. I think they're absolutely negligent. And I think the negligence is really about not fully and accurately understanding what their platforms are doing to individuals and what their platforms are doing to society. I just do not think they have their arms around it in a complete way. And I can't speak to their intention Is that deliberate? Is that because they're delusional? I I don't know. But I know that the impact is very serious and they are not aligned with the rest of us in terms of how severe and significant that impact is. I think everyone within Facebook has confirmation bias, probably in the same way that I have confirmation bias, right? I am picking out the family at the restaurant that's not looking at each other and staring at their phones and thinking, oh, look at Facebook, it's ruining families right? That's my confirmation bias. I think their confirmation bias is, look, there's so much good that Facebook has done and is doing for the world. I can't dispute that. And I suspect that the leaders there are looking to those cases more often and dismissing the severity of the cases that we talk about, arguably tipping the election in 2016, propagating conspiracy theories, propagating misinformation. I think their view is that's exaggerated and overweighted by people who are their critics. There's just not a business case for them to change. I've seen you talk about McDonald's, for example, seeing the writing on the wall and introducing healthier meal options or the automotive industry being very reluctant to add seatbelts, but being forced to do this ultimately. Do you think that Facebook has to be regulated? The FTC it was reported yesterday is moving closer to a decision about filing an antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. What do you think of that potential action? I guess I think that something has to change. I think some people will hear this and think that this is naive and Pollyannish, but what I would really like to see is the leaders of government all over the world, the consumers that really care about this issue, and then the leaders of the company get together and Maybe at the start, it's just a discussion about where we are. But if we could just agree 
on the common set of facts of the situation that we're in and the impact that these platforms are having on our world. If we could just get some alignment in a non-adversarial dynamic, I believe that there is a path whereby the leaders of the government, the leaders of the company, consumer advocates could get together and say, look, we created this mess. All three of these constituents, right? The consumers wanted more, the government allowed it, and then Facebook built it. I really am hopeful that there's a point in time when they can all come together and say, look, this doesn't work. The business model is incongruent with the long-term well-being of society and the individual. Therefore, not unlike basically how fossil fuels are incongruent with the long-term prospects for Earth, I think we need to have that reckoning, and ideally those groups would have that reckoning together and then create and invent a path out of it. A path out of it looks like probably a 10-year transition, not unlike fossil fuels to clean energy, but a 10-year transition whereby the government creates penalties, but also incentives for the migration that they co-create with the company and that consumer advocates can act as a control on. Otherwise, strict regulation that's adversarial, I'm not sure is going to solve the problem. And it's just going to be a drawn out battle whereby more individuals are going to get sick and we're going to continue to wreak havoc in society. Do you see Moment as a part of this solution? Is the ultimate play for Moment to be a B2B module within apps like Facebook that helps people become more aware of their usage of apps? I actually see Moment maybe more broadly than just a a module within Facebook. I'm investing in other companies that are focused on this as well outside of Moment. I think there's an opportunity to create a whole family of companies and tools that really work on the user's behalf, that deliver on the promise of social media, which was to connect us really to the people that we cared about, not to disrupt democracy, not to suck us into comparison and popularity and things that make us feel shitty. And so I guess I imagine there being a whole set of services that that work on people's behalf with a different business model, right? Like in, in moments case, our business model is not advertising. The consumer pays us much in the same way the consumer pays Peloton in exchange for a service that helps them get healthier and more fit, much in the same way that a consumer pays Calm to help someone get more mindful. I think there's going to be a whole set of services that will nibble away at what social media has done with an advertising-based business model, but we'll do it with a different model that really creates congruence between what is in the best long-term interest of the consumer and what's in the best interest of the company. I haven't been using Moment for that long, so I haven't come to the part where I have to pay for anything. What do you charge users of Moment for what service? Yeah, so the current version of Moment we're not charging for because we basically rebuilt it. The original Moment helped you develop awareness for how much you use your phone. And we've had 8 million people download and use Moment. Most of those people, when we asked them at the beginning, how much do you think you use your phone? Tell us that they use it two hours a day. Then we turn on tracking and we tell them at the end of a 24-hour period, actually used it four and a half hours a day. And that's the average across 8 million people. Everyone is off 
by a factor of two in terms of how often they use their phone. And then we offer coaching rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really the gold standard for helping people change behavior psychologically. And then in the, in the latest version of the app, we actually have a group capability. One of the gold standards in, in changing behavior, especially around behavioral addiction, is getting together with a group and holding yourself accountable to the new norms that you want to strive for. In the new moment app, we have this group capability. So families can sign up and create a leaderboard and see how often they're using their phone relative to other family members and hold themselves to targets. And friends can do that too. We're not charging for anything today because we want to give all of that away. And we're developing new tools that will be out in the next few months that will be our premium tools that we'll charge for. And I can hint at that. You can imagine social media would work for a little bit and then it would slow down and become less interesting. If you've ever had that experience of using a service when there's really limited bandwidth, we've probably all had that experience on planes because the Wi-Fi on planes is super slow. Ultimately, you just give up and you read a book or something. And so we think there's a way to simulate that on the phone, particularly on services that we think are removing your agency, like social media. That's the direction that will go. But we also think there's a really interesting direction that's separate that we're pursuing around rethinking social media without an advertising-based business model. What would that look like? What would a service that really just helps you stay in touch with the people you really care about, that isn't designed to just extract more and more of your attention each and every day with incendiary content and manipulative algorithms. What would that look like? And that's what we're working on creating as well. Tim, how has COVID impacted your business? I can see the need more than ever for an app-like moment. On the other hand, it feels like even in our house, we've almost like thrown up our hands at this point. It feels like a, a losing battle. We've seen Phone usage in general is up 20 to 30% based on the data that we see internally since the quarantine. Just to echo your point, I looked on Google Trends recently where you can basically see the, the relative trend of search terms. And I looked at the term phone addiction and you see it steadily rising. And then when COVID hit, it basically dropped precipitously. And I looked at it and I, I laughed. And I mean, it's actually not really funny. It's it just our reality, the reality you're alluding to, which is that phone addiction went from a top concern to not that big of a concern because there's a global pandemic. Our kids aren't in school. We're trying to do our jobs while our kids are in the other room on Zoom. We're trying to stay healthy. And this notion of oh, geez, I'm addicted to my phone, it just drops, right, as a serious concern. And in fact, on that point, when I heard Social Dilemma was coming out in the middle of September, I thought to myself, gosh, I don't think that anyone's going to pay attention because I don't know that people want one more thing to worry about. And so getting back to your earlier question, that was another thing that really surprised me about the reaction and, and the response from the film and the resonance of the film. Because between the election and COVID, it just didn't seem like there was space. But what I think it did successfully is highlight that social media is actually in a lot of ways at the root of some of the challenges that we're having with COVID. 
right, in terms of it being politicized, in terms of there not being shared truth around what exactly is happening with this virus. And it's really at the center of some of the challenges that we're having politically with government. And I think it's at the center of the challenges that we're having around the division that we're seeing around race. So Black Lives Matter on one hand, that advocacy, and white supremacy on the other hand. It's a depressing picture right now. But when you talk about this meeting that you'd like to happen, what are other potential outs here? If antitrust action is not necessarily an answer, what potentially could be an answer, even if it includes regulation? Well, I think that Congress and the Senate are looking really closely at Section 230 of the Communications Fair and Decency Act and and what that allows and has allowed since it got put in place in 1996 is all these online platforms, Google, Facebook, operate in a very different way than your traditional media company does in that they're not liable for the content that shows up on their network. That seemed like a great idea in 1996, and it did foster a lot of innovation because these bulletin board and portal-like services were able to grow unabated because they didn't have to deal with the liability issues on every piece of content that got posted on their platform. But you fast forward to today, and it sure seems like one of the ways that we could solve misinformation and conspiracy theories and this tribalism that seems to take root by virtue of these social networks is to start to make the social networks somewhat accountable for the kind of content that is on there and the accuracy of the content that's on their platform. And in fact, you rewind five or 10 years ago, the issue that really plagued Facebook and to a lesser extent, Google was privacy, people's data. Was my data safe? Was Facebook leaking data in ways that I didn't understand? Was my privacy actually protected? And the government threatened Facebook again and again and again, never did anything about it. And finally, in 2019, assessed a $5 billion fine and then ongoing penalties beyond that for issues around privacy. And it's interesting. It's been a year since those were put in place, and we haven't had any issues around privacy with Facebook. They've buttoned that up. And to me, it highlights that if The government gets serious, and I think Section 230 could be a vector by which they do that. If the government gets really serious about making Facebook start to really be accountable for some of the harm that they're creating in the world, and again, how do you measure that? How do you assess the penalties? Not sure. Not my domain of expertise, but it does seem to me, just in terms of pattern recognition, that if the government were to impose some restrictions and they could do that by amending section 230 and then associating some penalties in there. Maybe they create some incentives. Carrot and stick always seems to be a great way to get anyone or any organization to change. You may be able to change these platforms over time just in terms of the negative impact that they're having. Tim, before I let you go, I wanted to ask too, as somebody who obviously understands advertising very well online, what do you think of this case that the DOJ has brought against Google, accusing it of being an illegal monopoly? Any thoughts about whether this case makes sense? What's your hot take? It makes sense to me. And I'll explain why. If you're trying to start an online business and you want to monetize that business through advertising, it's not impossible, but it is an incredibly steep uphill battle. 
Pinterest ultimately broke through when I was president of Pinterest and working on their revenue business, but the dominance of both Google and Facebook within advertising makes it really difficult for new entrants. And what I mean by that is that the advertisers don't want to buy from you and they don't want to buy from you because they basically can get to anyone they want in a very effective way through Google and Facebook. And so what do they need Pinterest for? What do they need Snap for? What do they need a startup tomorrow for? So that's on the advertising side. On the search side, I think Google's been stifling competition for years on the search side. And I mean that less in terms of allowing new entrants to search, although the government may be asserting that. I actually mean it in terms of content providers and publishers. They've been stifling Yelp for years. They've been basically trying to create these universal search boxes that provide the same local information that Yelp does and that shows up organically in search when I search for sandwich shops in in downtown San Mateo. But then they put their own stuff above it and push it down to create a wedge to hurt Yelp's business so that they can support and build up their own local business. That's anti-competitive. It's anti-competitive, but they've also built their foothold by creating these free products that are very addictive. And they've also led people to log in, giving them much more accurate, cost-efficient search results for advertisers. And so it's chicken and egg. I agree with you. I think Bill Gates was making the same argument about a suite of office products sitting on top of a unified operating system. And he lost that argument. (laughs) Yeah. Innovation is happening so fast, right? And so much so that that the day that an antitrust law amendment is written, it's outdated. The way in which the government has to approach these is in a nuanced and creative way, and they're not going to get direct pattern recognition vis-a-vis the original law on antitrust, and they're going to have to do some interpretation. And that's what they're having to do in, in the case of Google. And they may have to do that same interpretation and parallel drawing with Facebook because there won't be a 100% match between what the law states about anti-competitive behavior and the behavior that they're pointing to in the complaint against Facebook. You talked about investing in related products. Would one related product be making consumers more aware of the data that they are leaking to companies like Facebook and Google, particularly through things like Alexa or through even Pinterest's visual search algorithms? It could be. I just don't think yet. I don't think consumers care yet. I think that there is absolutely an opportunity in terms of a service that helps me control my usage. I think there's absolutely an opportunity in terms of rethinking social service on the phone that isn't ad-supported and isn't predicated on getting me to spend more and more and more of my time on it. And then I actually think there's potentially a business, and you're seeing a bunch of upstarts in this area, around vetted and balanced news, or at least a filter on news that shows me relative accuracy relative credibility, and left or right leaning in terms of its bias. And we're seeing some companies now that I'm looking at personally to invest in because I think that's a powerful area. I certainly would pay $5 a month for something that I could really count on as truthful and unbiased and transparent. I mean, honestly, I read the New York Times sometimes and I read an article on the front page and In the introductory paragraph, 
I, I think, my God, am I reading an op-ed? Or is this a balanced, reported front page article? Because I think the New York Times is sometimes as guilty as Fox News. Tim, I think these are all really interesting ideas. It's it's interesting to hear that you're doing so much investing. I have to ask, right now there's a growing number of people who are raising these massive funds, these solo GPs, Lockie Groom of Stripe, or this other guy, Josh Buckley, is apparently raising a $150 million fund. I would imagine that a lot of people would like to entrust their money with you. Is there any reason you haven't raised a venture fund or would you ever take outside money to invest in startups? God, this is a dangerous thing to say on a podcast called Strictly VC. (laughs) I think traditional venture capital with traditional limited partners and the typical time frame of seven years from when the money goes in and the money needs to come out creates some of the problems that we have today. In other words, I think that companies are put in a position once they take traditional venture capital to do unnatural things, grow in unnatural ways. And absolutely, the social networks that took venture capital felt the pressure at the board level from traditional venture capitalists to grow the user base faster and monetize it more quickly. And all those things led to, for sure, this extractive business model that we're looking at today with a critical eye and saying, oh, whoops, maybe this business model is creating an outcome that we don't really like. And so if I ever took outside money to do more serious professional grade investing, I would only take it from wealthy individuals. And there would be an explicit term that basically said, there's no time horizon. You don't get your money back in seven to 10 years necessarily, right? Now that's going to limit the universe of people, right? But I think that's the criteria you need to have if you're really going to do investing in a way that doesn't contribute to the problems and misaligned incentives that we're dealing with today. Right. I 100% agree with you. And in fact, we've had a number of conversations with other people, including on this podcast, who also agree completely. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us. It was really interesting. We really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you for your time. Thanks again to Tim Kendall for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.